I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. I'm delighted to welcome to our podcast Esther Chu. Uh, she is professor, doctor, professor of emergency medicine. Um, thank you so much for joining me, professor. My pleasure. Um, you teach and practice um, in Oregon um, and at the Oregon Health and Science University. Uh, how are you finding treatment and response to what have been these second, third, new waves of COVID outbreaks? Yeah, in Oregon, uh, I mean, we're, um, we've been kind of steadily in the, probably the bottom third in terms of volume. Um, very early on, our governor kind of jumped in and did things like mandated mask wearing. So, um, you know, early on, we talked a lot about flattening the curve and Oregon expected a huge surge because, uh, you know, the entire outbreak first emerged in Washington state, which is just north of us. Um, but we kind of locked down quickly and avoided that early surge, you know, that we were, we were seeing happen in New York and other states on the East Coast um, and just, you know, into our neighbor to the north. Um, but it's kind of never, you know, it's kind of been steadily trucking along and, and we've been doing what the rest of the country is doing, which is as soon as things start to get better, uh, people relax and they change their social habits. And then, uh, and then we get, you know, a poorly timed national holiday where people really want to go out and gather. And then we see case rates, hospitalizations and deaths go up. So it's just, it's been a little bit stuttering here. When you think about that vicious cycle, uh, can a new U.S. administration, um, CDC, FDA, a new president and executive team, uh, do something um, or several things uh, to help with the consistency of the response over this next year period? Yeah, I really think they can. I mean, I, I think we need a new approach, you know? And so, uh, I mean, there's just so many obvious things that haven't been done. I mean, just simply the consistent establishment and maintenance and authority of a, of a coronavirus, uh, coronavirus task force that is um, populated by people who do this, you know, who are experts in pandemics, who have led before during outbreaks, who are really experienced scientists um, with the right expertise, epidemiologists, virologists, um, you know, supply chain people, just people who know to mobilize, um, people who have worked on pandemics in previous administrations. I mean, there should, should be a very, very strong scientific team calling the shots in our national response. I mean, so, so simple things like that um, would would make a, a big difference. And and the other thing that would make a big difference is um, is simple, straightforward consistent scientific messaging about public behaviors like mask wearing and not gathering in ginormous groups of people not wearing masks, you know? Um, so th there are some things that just, um, you know, it, it's just, we need a, a, a switch to come on and to start doing those things consistently. And that switch of course is going to be increasing the equity of our healthcare outcomes um, beyond just the kind of renewed commitment to competence and scientific method. Yeah. Um, so yeah. you know, if you are advising a president-elect or a President Biden uh, who, who does want a change in course and does acknowledge the, the disproportionate 
outcomes um, and fatalities in uh, communities and the disproportionate burden on healthcare workers, um, you know, specifically uh, health outcomes for black and brown folks, um, the largest burden on women um, as the first responders and medical professionals. Um, What do you do? Oh, I mean, this, uh, like you said, this requires a huge commitment and, um, and, and kind of a, like you said, like a, a flip in the way that we approach this. I mean, the first thing is to require that we disaggregate data by these categories. And so, you know, the process of even understanding these health disparities has been severely hampered by the fact that we don't look at data in that way. You know, it took until the summer for the majority of states to even report out data disaggregated by race and ethnicity. And so we had these little pockets of data that would come out and suggest, it looks like it's a little worse, you know, for Black Americans. Looks like it's a little worse over here for Hispanic and Latino Americans. And then the more data that emerged, actually the problem got bigger. You know, we were under measuring it. Um, And that kind of thing requires, you know, central uh, administrative federal leadership to prompt all states to collect and report out data um, in, in a certain way so that we really understand which communities are being hit because we have to prioritize things here. Every single resource, whether it's testing, contact tracing, uh, medications, vaccine, um, all those things need to have priorities. Um, and the prioritization certainly needs to happen by frontline healthcare workers, you know, the roles and other frontline workers, but then it needs to um, happen by um, by the communities that are hit the hardest because all of our fates are entwined with, uh, w- with wherever there are outbreaks. Um, and really this, like you said, this pandemic, like frankly, like all pandemics, has um, uh, has this instinct to go uh, to our most vulnerable communities. That includes, of course, you know, the elderly congregate um, settings like long-term care facilities, our correctional facilities, and universities. The vulnerabilities are stretch across society in the, the inadequacy of housing, education, and mm-hmm. um which is certainly a contributing factor to the poor health outcomes um, of certain individuals who are treated or diagnosed and, and contract COVID. You know, if you were really to take an approach, would it be from the top down in terms of situating the emergency care that is high quality in those communities that are so often segregated uh, from the rest of society, or would it be a bottom-up approach um, with uh, housing, education, um, and, and a focus on remaking communities so that they are less susceptible to be super spreaders, um, which really has to do with housing, education, and and economics? Yeah, I think we need to do both. So in the short term, we can't wait for this pandemic to be over to try to fix some of these things. And yet some of these things are so embedded into every policy that, um, you know, that comes out of every, every state and every government. And so I think there is an emergency aspect to this where we have to really with all speed 
um, work with communities on the ground floor and get them the resources that they need. You know, we patch together resources that will get communities through this pandemic and that will take, you know, a real investment and creative thinking, you know, I mean, health centers have been closing in in poor neighborhoods for decades. Um, And we can't rebuild hospitals that quickly. So we may need to be creative in terms of mobile health units, you know, getting people kind of pop up testing or at home testing, things like that, and trying to figure out um, what are the really flexible resources that we can do to penetrate some of our most um, our most underprivileged neighborhoods and uh, communities and regions. Um, And then we need an administration that understands that Health equity needs to be written into every policy that we write. I mean, there's no policy that doesn't very deeply affect affect health equity. You know, if you're if you're doing something about housing or jobs or the climate or or wealth or education, um, every single thing um, is a deep investment in people's health. And I think a, an administration that understands that that actually has someone in every single department. Um, who understands that, who has that orientation, understands the downstream effect of policy on health would be an incredible innovation for a new administration. Being at the helm of emergency care um, during the pandemic and, and historically over this last decade, if you were to envision a healthcare new deal, there's of course been a lot of attention devoted to the Green New Deal, but a specific health and medical infrastructure initiative that is not only the investigation of and deployment of vaccinations and therapeutics, Mm -hmm. uh, but that is at the ground level emergency care for every zip code that is going to be, you know, the highest quality that will be the propeller or catalyst for some of the social changes that will take more time in education and housing and economic disparities. Yeah. What would that look like um, in the climate that you're describing where health centers in poor neighborhoods have closed or have been dysfunctional and not been able to provide and, and, and failed very much in urban centers to deal with the high level of pandemic uh, incoming ICU activity? Yeah, that's a great question and a really fun one. I mean, I think for years we've been headed towards turning a hospital inside out, even before this pandemic, where the traditional walls of the hospital are not where healthcare should start or end. And emergency medicine, we've been doing that. You know, we really think of care as a continuum. It starts in the pre-hospital setting, um, actually with prevention. Our, our highest mission is to prevent people from coming here. And so modern day emergency medicine physicians think a lot about how do we stop car accidents from happening? You know, how do we break cycles of addiction and homelessness? Um, how do we prevent violence? Because when we invest in those things, um, we actually keep people from coming to us because by the time you come to us, health problems are often so downstream that it's actually hard to intervene in them effectively. So I think, um, you know, emergency care systems really need to start way before people come to us and then really extend way after their visit. So it's not just about the brief moment really in time that we have with them, but making sure that when they leave, they're connected to care that will last for a long time. So once again, they don't need to come back to us. I mean, it really is, it's kind of this, this joke that emergency care physicians um, have this fantasy that they'll be unemployed in some beautiful future where we can prevent people from having the kind of health crises that bring them to us. 
us in the first place. And of course, a lot of the health crises have to do with um, the things that we talked about before with, um, you know, with just falling through the cracks of society and having nowhere to go on a cold day, you know, is one of the things that we see most often. So I think really envisioning how can we how can we reimagine crisis care so that we're not so limited to a single room in a single place that's hard to get to? One thing that's happened in the pandemic is that many emergency medicines have shifted care, some part of the care or whole care to telehealth. And so I think there's there's a huge emphasis on technology for us, I think, right now that will never go away. And that means your emergency care visit sometimes is happening um, from your own home. <laughs> and our monitoring of patients um, is often happening digitally after patients leave for many weeks. You know, even at my hospital, we have a research program where if you come in and you're suspected to have COVID, um, we ask you to download an app so we can track your symptoms and it can trigger um, a prompt to come back for care if, you're, if your clinical course should deteriorate. You know, we're doing a lot of um, kind of distance measuring of, of heart rate, um, of oxygenation, things like that. And so I think... Um, I think there'll really be a time where we stop calling it an emergency room or an emergency department or even an emergency system and really just think about um, whole health and how healthcare providers come in and out of that at, at certain times and do their, you know, their darndest to really keep you from needing to go anywhere to stay healthy. One of the explanations for why, you know, naysayers have described that as implausible in America is, is because of the size of our population and because of of those disparities, even as those same people want to not acknowledge um, the, the disparities um, in inaccessibility of, of healthcare and medicine. But if you were to use an example of a you know per capita emergency care or medical system, uh, either at a state level of a country or municipal level, um, that could be emulated effectively here, uh, knowing kind of the current trajectory of American care, which started as um, you know private health insurance and has become um, more open with the Affordable Care Act to mm-hmm. those who need subsidized um, coverage and assistance, uh, and of course Medicare and Medicaid for highly vulnerable populations. Um, knowing where we are in that spectrum of care providing and accessibility, yeah. what um, states would you point to if there are states in our country or countries that you would point to where we could get to the kind of model that you just described? Oh boy. I mean, I don't know that a single state comes to mind, although certainly many states have had targeted innovations recently. I, I do think that, I will say this in general is I think what's happened over the past nine months is that it's been an explosion of innovation in terms of accessibility. Um, And of course, you know, we've always had populations who didn't have access to healthcare. You think of um, people you mentioned, you know, who don't have health insurance, but also, you know, our huge elderly population, our huge um, population of people with disabilities. There are simply people who, um, you know, can't get to healthcare either because they can't afford it or because it they physically cannot get to healthcare. And and we by and large ignored that problem both in terms of innovative payer strategies but also just innovating the way that we deliver healthcare. And what's going to happen 
after COVID, because in COVID, we've done these incredibly innovative things very fast, and we've changed entire payer structures so that, um, you know, hospitals and healthcare providers can give care over telehealth and get reimbursed in different ways. We're reimbursing um, care for, uh, for, for drug use disorders, um, because particularly for opioid use disorders, there's incredible innovation because many of those therapies traditionally have to occur in an in-person setting. And then in COVID, we were either going to abandon that entire population of patients, or we were going to learn to reimburse that kind of care and actually make it possible for patients to receive certain medications, um, uh, you know, through, uh, through uh, telehealth and through phone calls. And if we didn't do that, we, we simply were going to leave too many Americans behind. So we did it. We innovated. Um, and, and, you know, every state had a slightly different approach, but we found out that we don't actually need to drag people in. And so I think what's going to happen afterwards is that we're going to do um, literally thousands of studies examining different models. It's kind of what we call these natural experiments where every state did things a little bit differently in order to make things work for patients who couldn't access healthcare. And, um, and we'll do a ton of studies and the best models will rise to the surface. And I actually think a year from now, we will understand a lot more about policies that improve access um, through some of these COVID-related innovations. And of course, it's sad that we didn't do it until really, you know, until really we got to crisis levels and we had to do it for everybody. We didn't seem to have the drive to do it when it was a smaller number of people who were vulnerable and didn't have access to care, but we did it and anyway. And I, I think what will come out of this is like understanding what strategies did we use that made sense for everybody that were, you know, economically feasible and just so good in terms of accessibility for a broader population with uh, really hard endpoint health outcomes that were positive. And I think hopefully that information will drive the future of healthcare. And, and I hope those changes will, will never go away and will be sustained. Dr. Chu, as a final question, I don't think you can arrive at that future with a public that doesn't have absolute respect for science. Um, mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean that there, there aren't challenges about the effectiveness of, of one medication versus another or one procedure versus another. And that's part of the scientific process. But we know, if we're speaking in reality, that this administration um, has completely dismissed and dismantled uh, science as um, the uh, creed uh, to confront uh, COVID, this pandemic, and a a coherent strategy. And so it's in the countries um, that are either led by scientists or that have had very strong public education systems where you saw um, a you know rather quick decline in contraction of the virus and uh, super spreading events, um, you know it, it it just occurs to me to ask you: We are striving for a model of care that is most effective, um, that is going to give people access and not require um, the 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 volume of emergency care that you're that you're describing for your whole body and your whole community, uh, but it's not clear that you can get to that point without a public that is more supportive of science than what appears to be the sentiment in the United States now, which may be a majority, but probably not a super majority, um, mm-hmm. and maybe just a plurality of folks who really do 
respect the science. Yeah, it's, um, you know, the, the systems we set up were intended to allow scientific objectivity that's free from politics. You know, these bodies, um, Health and Human Services, CDC, the NIH, uh, I mean, there are always elements that have become politicized, you know, for example, research on gun violence and things like that, unfortunately. But for the most part, we expect that there are these scientific institutions that can guide us through crises like the current ones, um, separate from politics. And the way that that has been derailed, um, the way that CDC has not, you know, been brought to the forefront and actually empowered and fully resourced to guide us through this is, uh, it's really astonishing in my lifetime and over the period of my career. And um, I, I think we see what we're going through right now is just a case study and how if you politicize something like this, um, a pandemic in which the entire population needs to have respect for science and um, and trust our leaders to guide us in a scientifically based way out of this pandemic, you know, we, um, you know, we lose that trust and, and we're exactly where we are, which is we just cannot beat this thing. It's just, it's, you know, I don't know if it's wave or hump or whatever after, after wave. Um, and we just cannot get rid of this thing. And, you know, our, the, our most influential messengers are, are, you know, is, is our administration. And so um, it's been a, it's been a disaster. Um, I, I do think this may be a little optimistic uh, or Pollyannish, but I do think when I when I step outside of kind of the the media and the messaging, and I talk to people directly, I mean, I have a fairly conservative family. I have many conservative friends because of where I grew up, and when we talk on the level of humans, um, people understand these principles of mask wearing and social distancing. And there's just something about the concern of this virus and our family members and our friends that transcends politics. I really believe it on an individual level um, that many of us have the same views. I mean, the majority of Americans believe that, that they should wear a mask the majority of the time. I mean, and we may differ around the margins, but most of us truly believe um, in these simple measures and also truly believe that there are no skin off our backs, you know? I mean, I don't, I don't personally know of anybody of any political persuasion that really thinks that masks are such a big hindrance on what they need to do in life, you know? Um, it's not that heated of a conversation when you get to know people um, who also love their families and their communities. Um, but, um, but I think the, uh, you know, the administration is not leading that conversation around common values that we should be having. So it is a, just a really um, upsetting thing how this has been, uh, this has turned into a hugely politicized thing that has caused us to, um, cause the focus of, of pandemic leadership to be way off center and um, and not not based in the you know the objective bodies that we have come to trust and lead us out of out of similar crises in the past. Um, truly, something that makes me feel sad every single day. Um, this uh, you know we don't even understand the extent of this because of uh, you know testing is is obviously incomplete. So um, I think we'll have a lot to look back to, uh, on and and mourn, um, but hopefully learn some really big lessons. Dr. Esther Chu, thank you so much for your insight today. Thank you for having me on.